It's Mike Morse. Welcome to Open Mic. I'm excited about today's episode. We have David Rudolph and Sonia Pfeiffer on. You might recognize those names from the award-winning Netflix series, The Staircase, which covers a Michael Peterson murder trial and post-conviction hearings and all this kind of stuff. I'm not going to give it away right now, but you're not going to want to miss this episode. I ask him questions. I don't think he's been asked before uh, about this case. So stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss this episode of Open Mic. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one my whole career. What you're going to hear. You got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. David Rudolph and Sonia Pfeiffer, thank you both for being with us here on Open Mic. I have so many questions for you. I've been reading about your history and, and, and so many exciting things you guys have been a part of, things that we've been trying to cover on Open Mic here for the last year plus with all the wrongful exonerations and everything. But David, let's dive right in. You know, you've been an attorney for many years. You've always fought for the little guy. And I want to know what drives you and, and what has always driven you to those cases. You know, uh, I grew up in the uh, you know, I was I was in college when uh, when Kent State happened. Uh, I was in law school during Watergate. Uh, so I've always had a sort of healthy uh, skepticism uh, about power and people in power. Uh, and so uh, I think that's that's sort of what has been the basis of my career. Uh, and I, I never had any desire to be a prosecutor. I've never had a desire to be a judge. Uh, my desire has always been to represent real people uh, and try to help them at the time that they need help the most. And, you know, uh, it's, it's not a question of, quote, getting people off, I don't think. It's a question of trying to ameliorate whatever situation they have put themselves in, usually as a, moment, as, as a matter of sort of split-second decision-making. Uh, so... Uh, it's always been my, my, uh, bias, uh, to, to help those people who are sort of behind the eight ball with the government. Uh, and, uh, to this day, that's what I do. And Sonia, I recognize you from the Netflix series, Abuse of Power. You had a starring role in that from early on in the series. And, and then, you know, your journey, uh, you were a reporter in the series and now you're a lawyer and now you guys are married and you guys have this great podcast. So tell me, you know, start from, you know, um, you know, getting into the Peterson trial as a reporter and what drove you to law school. I have some guesses, but tell me about that journey and where you are today. Sure. So I was a reporter for 12 years before I entered law school. And when I covered the Michael Peterson murder trial, that was in 2003 that the trial occurred, but I was put on the case earlier. Um, that was already my third or fourth job in the business. I started at CNN in Atlanta on the overnight desk. I was in Paris for a year freelancing. I was in New York for two and a half years. I was in Omaha, Nebraska. I mean, those in the business know that's how it goes. But I was in journalism at a time where you were given the opportunity to really research the story, find the right interviews, and put something together that had some meaning, had some meat, um, and really told a good story, whether it was something investigative or whether it was more entertaining or just something interesting about the town where you were living in. By the time I covered the Peterson case in 2003, there had been a real shift in the business, and a lot of locally owned stations were purchased by bigger corporations who weren't so invested in the local community as much as they were in the bottom line profit. 
And so what happened is you had consultants coming in, basically doing fairly biased uh, interviews of people who were watching that television station, asking, what do you want to see in TV news? And then giving them a multiple choice answer and saying, you only have five minutes, choose your top three. Well, of course, you're going to say crime, traffic, and weather for the most part. But I think if you ask people an open-ended question about what they want to see in local news, it's going to be stories that matter. Um, so I was already feeling a little disenchanted by the time I covered this case. And I did a lot of investigative reporting, which meant I covered reporters or cases. I'm sorry, covered lawyers or cases frequently. And I found that I enjoyed everything about that process and started to think the thing to do was go to law school and be a legal reporter. Um, that's why I decided to go to law school. I got accepted into Carolina when I was actually reporting up at WCVB in Boston. And so I came back to North Carolina during the week to go to law school and reported and anchored on the weekends up in Boston. Um, but in law school, I quickly recognized the better place to tell stories was in the courtroom and on behalf of people who didn't really have a voice or whose voice was muffled or just not heard or listened to. And so that's how the transition to uh, being a lawyer happened, thinking I'd be a legal reporter, but then in fact becoming a criminal defense attorney and now a civil rights attorney myself. That's, I mean, <laughs> what a journey. Um, so after, you know, law school, you, you met David, I assume, uh, during the Peterson trial. Is that true? Correct. Yes. We met in, I think 2001 was when I was put on the case. So um, as you know, you don't get charged with something and then you're on trial immediately. There was a period of at least a year and a half where I was reporting, where other reporters were reporting and really developing relationships with people on both sides of the case. And was it, I mean, did you guys uh, start dating soon after the Peterson trial, during the Peterson trial? I mean, am I allowed to ask that question? Yeah, you're, you're allowed, allowed to ask. Yeah. The answer is no, not during. <laughs> but, but a lot of people ask, and can we tell the stories of how you treated me during that trial, or would you rather not? No, you can tell. <laughs> you enjoy telling the story, so go ahead and tell it. I want to hear <laughs> Look, you're a practicing lawyer, and when there's press on your case, I mean, there's going to be times when it doesn't make you happy what they're reporting. Because if you're a good reporter, and I was a very good reporter, you're ticking somebody off all the time because you're covering both sides. And I remember a handful of six o'clock live shots when I would finish, I'd wrap, I was in my little car on my way back to Raleigh, and my phone would ring, and I would see whose number it was, and I'd say, hello. And I would then take the phone away from my ear because I knew I was literally about to get an earful. And I would hear, do you know how difficult you're making my job? I'm out there. It's like being in an emergency room and I'm trying to plug up my client and you're right behind me ripping out the plugs. Do you understand what you're doing? And I would just listen and I would listen. I would say, I understand. I understand. I, I, I hope you understand that I'm doing my job. Yeah, well, your job is... Anyway, after the trial, being the gentleman that he is, uh, David did call to make amends, and we had what we call in the South a come amends. <laughs> <laughs> what we call a come to Jesus, where he explained um, why he was so vociferous in those calls. And in fairness, now that I'm a practicing lawyer, particularly a criminal defense lawyer, I get it. I mean, yeah. you might spend so much time keeping something out of court only to see a reporter on the six o'clock news telling everybody and their brother what you just fought so hard to keep out. Um, I think there's a little imbalance there between the First Amendment and somebody's constitutional rights to a fair trial, but that's for another day. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I hear you. And, and so I assume though, now now with some of your, your, your current cases, dealing with the press, I mean, how are you finding that? Are you, you must be really good at handling them or do you find it difficult? I don't 
find it difficult, but I also think things have changed dramatically. You know, when we have a case where you're talking to the press now, a few things are different. One, um, oftentimes the reporters are just looking for anything because they have so many spots to fill, whether it's tweeting something, whether it's a blog of some kind, whether it's getting an update for the newsletter that comes out at 11 before your stories do it too. So I think that the depth of questioning that I used to do, that other reporters used to do, I'm not sure you have the time for that. And so it's a little bit different when you're responding. You can know as an attorney what message you want to get across, and you can very clearly get that message across, sort of no matter what the questions are. Um, I do love dealing with the press when they are reporters who really care about the story, who want to get it right, who tell both sides, but take the time to do the research and get the information and really get the story right so that a reader or a viewer um, is getting some understanding of something other than a headline. Yeah, and I think, Mike, that it's important for lawyers, uh, especially in a high-profile case, to work with the reporters to background so that they understand the issues and can report if they want to fairly. Yeah. Uh, so I've always spent a lot of time on background with reporters, just letting them understand what our perspective is uh, so that you know when we file a motion, uh, they have some feel for why the motion's been filed and what we're trying to accomplish, not for being quoted, but just to help them do their job. And, and I think, you know, it's a very symbiotic relationship. Uh, you know, they need us, and to a certain extent, we need them uh, if if things are going to be fair. Well, because you have to realize, particularly in a criminal case, I mean, it's slightly different in a civil case where you have fair access to both sides. Oftentimes, the easiest information to access is from the police and the prosecution. You know, you get the perp walk, you get the press release, you get the DA or her assistant speaking to the press about charges. You know, that's the low hanging fruit. So if you're not taking the initiative or returning that phone call, I think you're doing a client a real disservice because otherwise the narrative that the state or the government wants to get out there is, in fact, the narrative that gets out. And that infects your jury pool and beyond. So before we hop into the uh, Peterson case and the Netflix and your and your podcast, David, I have a question about consistent problems that you've seen in in the many many years you've been doing criminal defense. And you know, my background as a civil attorney, um, on our podcast, we've now interviewed five exonerees who've spent you know dozens of years collectively, over a hundred years collectively, in prison for crimes they absolutely did not commit, like no question. And as a lawyer, almost 30 years, new into the criminal defense, even interviews, right? I haven't even actually, I mean, I've taken on one uh, wrongful conviction case that my firm is handling. We haven't even gotten in front of the judge yet. So that's not a, a topic for this. But I'm seeing so many consistencies of inequities in this justice system that, that we have or the in, injustice system we have. And I'm curious you know, what you're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis. And if you're, if, if either of you think we're getting better, are we, are we starting to get better? Because a lot of the cases that we're seeing, a lot of the people that I'm interviewing, they are a little bit older cases. And I'm curious if you think that we're, if we're, we're solving any of these problems. So I know it's a pretty good end of question, David, but I'm gonna let you take a stab at that. Well, and, and let me start by talking about sort of the, the, the root cause, if you will, as I see it, you know, because people can talk about 
eyewitness identifications or they can talk about junk science or, you know, you can talk about uh, uh, false confessions. I think the root cause is really uh, confirmation bias. I think that we all, all of us suffer from confirmation bias in one way or another. What does that mean? What that, what that means really is that you develop a theory or a feel for something, and then everything gets filtered through that theory. So, for example, the police come onto a scene, uh, and the wife is dead, and the husband is there, and he's, quote, not acting right. You know, he's not as emotional as they think he should be, or he's too emotional, or whatever. Well, you know, these police officers have theories. And one of their theories is that most domestic uh, deaths are related to the spouse. So they immediately start that investigation with that lens, you know, that it's probably the spouse. Now that's where confirmation bias starts coming in because as they learn facts, facts that become consistent with their theory, aha, he had an affair a year ago. That may be the motive. Facts that are inconsistent with the theory, he broke up with the woman six months ago and hasn't seen her, that becomes less important because the, the critical thing is he was willing to have an affair. He must be having another one or whatever. So he, there's this filtering process that goes on. Uh, and, and then what happens is, and it, it's unfortunately most often in cases where the evidence is really weak, uh, then there's a tendency to, for example, try to get a confession. Uh, and, and there may be, you know, pressures put on people to falsely confess or evidence gets fabricated. Or, for example, in the Peterson case, you have a Dwayne Deaver, a, a junk science expert who comes in and testifies about blood spatter. And that becomes the, you know, the overriding theme of the case. So, you know, it can be false confession. It can be junk science. It can be all kinds of things. But when you really get down to the basics, it's confirmation bias, what's sometimes called tunnel vision. Uh, we all suffer from it. Yeah. Let, no, I hear you. Let's talk about that. So we've been beating around the bush. The Michael Peterson murder case, a 2001 murder in North Carolina that you. Oh, yeah, um, it, was, it was a death. It wasn't a murder. It was a death. Sorry. I'll right. be specific. I don't want to have tunnel vision here. <laughs> Thank, um, you. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> um, so, you know, for anybody who's watching this and listening to this, if, if you've not checked out the uh, Netflix series um, Staircase or The Staircase, very, very well done. An Academy Award director uh, directed it. There's been some updated episodes. Um, I have, I found that series fascinating and let's talk about theories. I mean, first of all, yeah, you must watch this if you haven't watched it, but first of all, I want to know how you got involved in the case. Cause you just kind of showed up on the scene. Um, and, and then I have, I have some very specific questions for you. So how did you get, how did you know somebody involved or was it just a, you were one of the best guys in town and they, they were looking for the best. It, it was sort of a combination. Um, I had uh, I had just finished representing a NFL player by the name of Ray Carruth, uh, who had been charged with murder, and uh, he had been found not guilty of the murder, although guilty of 
conspiracy, which was hard to understand, but in any event, uh, that got a lot of national press. Uh, and uh, uh, when when Michael Peterson uh, came under suspicion, his brother, who was a lawyer in uh, Lake Tahoe uh, or Reno, uh, started looking around. Uh, and so he got uh, several names from lawyers who he had talked to, uh, and I was one of the names. So, uh, you know, I went and met with Mike. Uh, I brought my investigator with me, uh, and we sp spent a couple hours just talking about the facts and what had happened. Uh, and it's it's really just no more complicated than that. Uh, okay. You you probably get hired a lot the same way. People recommend you, uh, sure. and uh, and you know you sort of go from there. So I'm gonna. I mean, I know you've done probably hundreds of interviews on this case, and we're going to get to the facts of the case. But I, I have some questions about, you know, the team you put together, the TV series, the Netflix series that was being shot. It looked very real time, simultaneously with what you guys were doing. I've never. I mean, that's rare. You know, you let these guys in behind the scenes. I, yeah, I remember one of the scenes in one of the first few episodes where you're, set, you're sitting around, like it looks like a banquet table with a nice white tablecloth and you're writing good facts versus bad facts and you're putting it on the board. You have 10 or 15 people in the room. You have experts, jury consultants, tens, tens of thousands of dollars worth of hourly rates going on in that room. I mean, I mean, talk about a dream team. You had Werner Spitz from my hometown here in Detroit. Um, we'll talk about him in a minute because um, I know he's a character and I want to get into that. But um, tell me, I mean, how did the series come about and how did they convince you to, to let, was it your idea? Was it their idea? How did they convince you to go behind the scenes? Because if any of that stuff, if any of that footage got out in real time, you're done, you're dead. So I don't. I didn't understand it, and it was fascinating to me. Now, Mike, that's a compound question. I know. <laughs> I got so many questions, but now take me through how that came about. It's fascinating. Well, let, let me let me talk a little bit about it. So, uh, you know, like most lawyers, I've never let my client be interviewed before a trial, ever, ever, ever. Uh, and I I turned down a number of interviews in this case, uh, and then. Uh, these guys contacted me, uh, and they had a different approach. They weren't interested in the sensationalism of the case. They weren't interested in who did what. They wanted to do a film about the process, about what happens in a criminal case. And they had just finished a film called Murder on a Sunday Morning, which is what they won the Academy Award for, for Best Documentary. And so I watched that, uh, and it was very, very well done. Uh, and they were interested in understanding how the American criminal justice system worked. For someone, you know, in, in Murder on a Sunday Morning, he was a poor, black, indigent client who was represented by a public defender and was found not guilty. You just gave away the history. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Edit that part. Yeah, exactly. Just go watch it. <laughs> and I'm going to watch it. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so they wanted to do a, a documentary on the other end of the economic spectrum. And so they were looking for a case. Uh, and they happened to call somebody at, at Court TV uh, uh, who recommended they talk with me, not because they knew I had this case, but just they thought I would know about 
cases that might fit the uh, profile. And as it turned out, uh, just a couple of months earlier, uh, I had agreed to represent Michael. So it was very coincidental. Uh, it wasn't planned. Uh, and uh, to be honest, I'm not sure I would have met with them, but for the fact that they had just won an Academy Award. Uh, sort of like, okay, uh, yeah, you, you're a documentary filmmaker. You won an Academy Award. I'm willing to hear you out. Uh, and so I met with them, and, and I was impressed. You know, they were from France. Uh, they had a very different approach uh, than, than most American filmmakers, I think, or documentary makers. Uh, and uh, I got a real sense that they were interested in understanding what happens in a criminal case. And more importantly to me, what a criminal defense lawyer actually does. You know, uh, criminal defense lawyers have gotten, you know, I grew up with Perry Mason, uh, who was a hero. Uh, you know, now you look at, uh, you know, uh, law and order and all the criminal defense lawyers are sleazebags. Uh, and so uh, I felt like it would be, if we could work out the logistics, uh, it would be a time where I could show people what we actually do, that we actually are interested in helping to find the truth. Michael, on the other hand, was very concerned that the powers that be in Durham, because he had written a number of critical articles about them, uh, we're gonna we're gonna uh, shaft them, uh, and so he he liked the idea of having a film crew there uh, as a way of perhaps leveling the playing field. And the fact that they were from France, yeah, and, and the, didn't yeah. prejudge him or know anything right. about him. So the bottom line is this, though: I wasn't going to allow them to film uh, unless there were certain preconditions met. Uh, and among the preconditions was that when they were filming. Uh, intimate things, things that were attorney-client privilege, that they were filming those for me and that those were privileged unless and until I said they're not privileged. Smart. Uh, and so uh, they agreed to that. Now, I don't know that American filmmakers would have even agreed to that, but I didn't really care, Mike, because that for me was a deal breaker. If, if I couldn't have that agreement, they weren't going to film. You know, I mean, that's a very, very smart way of doing it. I mean, you owned it until you released it, and I get it, and that that's smart. And, and so, Sonia, I have a question for you. You know, after the fact, you're covering this. Like, I, I, David, I was impressed with the um, the preparation. I mean, I got to ask you this. I mean, you didn't. Nothing was staged for the film. I mean, you had to wear microphones. You had to. You had to, I've been on these reality shows and, and I've been filmed. I mean, you have to, you have to listen to the people, but that you would have done the same exact stuff, whether or not they were there. They were flies on the wall. They didn't tell me to do a single thing. They didn't ask me to redo something. If they didn't get it, they didn't get it. Uh, you know, for me, what was important was that it was authentic. Yeah. I think it comes across that way because. It is. Uh, you know, when you when you watch, for example, uh, the second season of Making a Murderer, uh, a lot of the stuff just seems staged. You know, the you know, the experiments and whatnot, uh, because I think they were. Uh, I, I was adamant that if we were going to do this, they were going to film it as it happened. Uh, now, I would tell them I would say to them, 
hey, listen, we're going to do a good facts, bad facts session so that they could set up for it. So once we started doing it, they were just there to film, period. How fascinating was that for you to watch, Sonia, after the fact, seeing how they came up with their legal theories, seeing the experts bending down and looking at the blood spatter, debating whether it should be, you know, should they go with the intruder uh, defense or that she fell down the stairs defense, which we'll get into. I mean, that must have been, I mean, how was that? You mean to see it afterwards after covering the trial and being like, oh, so that's what happened. Yeah. Like, yeah. very cool. But I will also tell you that David would share information, not as much as the Frenchies got, but with the reporters who were interested in knowing what was happening, um, you know, if a pretrial motion was filed, it might have been given to the reporters in advance so that we could begin to understand and ask the right questions. But to see everything come together the way that it did was very impressive. And the sense all of us had in the courtroom at the verdict, I felt that again, watching the film, but this time, even just watching it, it was more intense because now you understood even more what had happened to get to that point. Right. Um, now, when the Netflix series came out, of course, it had an additional four, five, part, five parts. Um, the first one that came out didn't have a happy ending. Um, and so to see the second one, you know, enough time had passed. And by then, of course, we were married. So I knew more. Um, and it was really celebratory at the end. It felt like I, I, there's, there's an image of me crying in the documentary at the end, like listening at the MAR. And, and then even when I watch it, like, I want to cry again because I know um, not just what happened professionally, but now personally, I know the toll it took and how important it was to get that final result and to just close that book. Thank you for putting it in context. The, the original Netflix series, if people check it out, the original eight-ish episodes came out in 2004? 2004 on Sundance Channel. Right. And then three, I think, three or four more episodes were just released when? There were, there were, there were five additional episodes, five. Uh, and they were released by Netflix in 2018. Got it. And they released, Netflix released the whole series. Yeah, anyway, Netflix whole series and, and and released it all at one time and overall i have to ask this so i don't forget for later are you are you uh pleased with how the the series came out you know what i'm most pleased with uh is the reaction that people have had to it uh you know as you can imagine it was a risk you know uh uh and you never know how those things are going to turn out uh but you know, Mike, I have just gotten so I got a, I got an email two days ago from a commander of a police unit in Denver uh, telling me how how much he respected uh, what I had done uh, and how his father was a, a retired homicide detective and he respected what I had done. And I wrote him back, you know, how it doesn't get any better, yeah. than that, you know. Uh, and and I can't tell you how many people have told me I had no idea what you guys do. You know, I have a whole different view of criminal defense lawyers now, and that for me, yeah, is, is well, I David, I agree. I mean, you definitely don't come across anything but genuine and ethical, and smart, and thoughtful. And like you really cared for this guy and the team you put together. I mean, obviously, I know the answer to this. I mean, you, you don't put a team like that together on every case you have. Correct. Um, 
on the big ones you do. Um, but it was, it was, you know, it was, you know, it was a dream team. I mean, you had some really good defense attorneys with you. You had his friends, his family, you had jury consultants, you had, um, you had pathologists. Let's like, for example, you flew one in from Detroit, Werner Spitz, uh, who is, um, a legend, a legend, world renowned. He was the Oakland County medical examiner for a hundred years. His son is now the Oakland County medical examiner. Um, how did you find him? Well, he was world famous. He was a legend. You know, and, and to be honest, you know, I was, look, I wasn't looking for famous. I was looking for the best person I could find in each forensic uh, discipline. So who do you go to as a crime scene person? You go to Henry Lee, yeah. not because Henry Lee is famous, but because Henry Lee is the best person that I knew of at the time. Uh, the OJ trial, right? Right. But that was a negative, really. I mean, you yeah. know, uh, but, you know, and Barry Sheck is a very old and good friend of mine. And Barry had worked with Henry a lot. Uh, and and recommended him, you know, wholeheartedly. Uh, Werner, you know, I, I had read his book, you know, Medical Legal Investigation of Death. You know, he wrote the book. So I'm yeah. going to get him if I can. Uh, you know, I got I got uh, Jan Lietzma, who was a, a great neuroradiologist uh, and, and uh, pathologist. Um, so every person I got, I tried to get at least a leading person, if not the leading person in their field. Um, and, you know, my theory was if, if we're going to do this, let's do it with the best people and, and try to really educate the jury about what the science was. Because, you know, when you looked at the blood spatter, the emotion was murder. Uh, and so I felt a need to really try to educate the jury that things are not always as they seem. Things are not always as they seem. The the um, you know, your facial expressions in some of those first couple episodes, um, you know, were so good that uh, it, you know it's between you and and how the how the um, producers and the directors captured it. It's like you almost could see into your brain when you were describing to I think it was your jury consultant your theory of how she tripped down three steps and created all that splatter. And your brain trying to sell it as a good attorney, think not believing it. Like I'm like, he doesn't believe, like I'm not sure how much he believes this yet. And you were still trying to figure out your theories. Sure. Fairness. But, you know, I'm trying, as I'm sitting here asking these questions, trying to think of other TV shows, movies that really got to the heart of it. And your tough decisions, even your debating, should he go on the stand? Shouldn't he go on the stand? And that whole um, speech you gave about that was impactful. And I, and I don't think people really realize how much is involved in making those tough decisions. Um, and I think, you know, your thought process just came across as genuine and, and, um, um, and hard. It's, these are hard, these are not easy calls. And I don't think, you know, there's never an easy answer and it's never, you know, you don't know until after the jury verdict comes in if you made the right call. Well, and, and, you know, part of the reason I do things the way I do things is because I want to be able to sleep at night. 
And as you know, Mike, you may think you're making the right decision, but it turns out in retrospect to have been the wrong decision. And if you haven't thought about it and you didn't have a good reason to do it, and somebody is going to prison as a result of a decision that you made that you didn't really think carefully enough about, I don't know how you live with yourself in that situation. So for me, the critical thing is not whether I've made the right decision or the wrong decision, because you know you just don't know. The critical thing for me is that I've made a thoughtful decision. I've taken into account everything that I know, all my experience, whatever what everybody else who I respect had to say, which is why we sat around that table and debated whether he should get on the stand and listened. And you listen, uh, uh, you know, and, and then you make the best decision you can make. And then you can go to sleep at night no matter what happens because you know you've done your best. As I'm interviewing these exonerees, all five of the people, four men, one woman, woman believe it or not, Julie Balmer, um, who has spent many years in prison for something she didn't do, all of their defense attorneys did not have any of the characteristics you just described. These were, for the most part, you know, public defenders or appointed attorneys who didn't have a budget, could not put together any team, didn't hire experts, uh, didn't have any meetings with their clients remotely. I mean, you had a coach to coach him, you know, how to, how to testify and, and get him prepared for the stand. Um, so I don't even know what my question is right now. Well, let, let me, let me, let me suggest where you're going, which I think, and I want to say this, I was a public defender in the South Bronx, uh, for a couple of years, which is where I met Barry. Uh, and then I was a federal defender in Brooklyn for a couple of years. And, I didn't approach my cases any differently then than I do now. As a matter of fact, I remember specifically thinking to myself, I'm going to treat these indigent clients the way I would treat a bank president because I want them to feel like I respect them uh, and I want them to feel like I care about them. So it, you're right. You don't have the resources necessarily, but the attitude uh, is is yours you know it's what you bring to the case and i will tell you that you know i don't know who these appointed lawyers are or public defenders were but the vast 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 majority of people who i know who are public defenders uh are really dedicated people uh who who care about their clients they may not have the resources they may be overworked uh but they really care so you know you're right in the sense that you have certain uh, abilities to bring on people when you're in private practice that you don't necessarily have when you're representing somebody who's indigent. Uh, but uh, the attitude and the care, you know, in, in 40 years, I have never been post convicted. No client has ever come back, no matter what the result, and accuse me of being, you know, uh, ineffective or not caring. Wow. Never. And and that's just it's a it's a reflection of how you approach them, and 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 how they feel about what you've done for them. It's just how do you teach that? You know, I, I've had lots of interviews on this podcast 
with professors and great criminal defense attorneys who are trying to fix the system. These, these public defenders, uh, the court appointed attorneys are so overworked and they have so many cases and I'm just listening to you and I hear your passion. I feel your passion, but four of the five of the attorneys who represented just the five, this is such a small sampling of the people that I've interviewed on my little podcast. Four of them have been disbarred after the fact for ineffective assistance and, and, and for other things that they did. So, and I know that you read about and probably have helped people with wrongful exonerations and you've seen bad defense attorneys, but like, it's like, how do you get that passion that you're describing um, into these attorneys? Now, didn't I read a part of your bio that you did teach for a period of time and you have, um, you, 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 you got back into the courtroom after teaching and you were trying and you motivated your students to get, become public defenders, which I thought was fascinating and fabulous. Yes. Uh, well, I, let me let me just interrupt because he taught me because I became a public defender after law school. Wow. And in my first year of law school, when I decided to be a public defender, I do think in large part it was because of the example that I saw. And when you see somebody who you admire, you figure out what they did and what their career was. And I learned that he had been a public defender. And then, of course, as our relationship developed, I had the incredible benefit of having his perspective and his insight. And I remember when I worked at the public defender's office, people would joke. You remember Tom Mockers that joked that one time about my first trial. I was like, oh, I bet she's going to treat this one like a capital murder case. And it was like a misdemeanor marijuana possession. But I did. And I think part of how you teach and how David has taught, because some of our good friends now were his students. You know, some of his closest, like ski buddies, they come out once a year for a trip. They were people he taught. It's by really sharing that passion and having the work behind it to prove that that's what you do. Um, you can't deny the power of a person's passion, particularly when you're in their presence. And once you represent a person and you recognize their humanity, I mean, the biggest mistake in going into any case is not seeing your client as a human being in the way that the system often does. They fail them from the get-go. Once you feel and understand their humanity, you can't turn the other way. You can't but do everything possible in your power to make sure they're treated fairly and the outcome is the best that it can be. So I think teaching by example is how who does it. And I do feel for those who don't have incredible examples. And that's one benefit of the staircase. I mean, I don't mean to fawn over it, but everything you said about what you observed in David, not only do people who have been practicing for decades see that, but so do aspiring lawyers or young lawyers or even young prosecutors. And I think that is a huge value of the staircase. And I truly think that it's David's greatest legacy is inspiring other people to be real fighters. Yeah, and just to pick up on that, I just like, you know, I get uh, emails from from law enforcement. I have gotten so many emails from law students, wow. young lawyers saying, wow, I watched the staircase. I wasn't thinking about being a criminal defense lawyer, but now I am. Or, wow, you know what you did just blew me away. Uh, and and uh, I want to I want to do that. So you're right. I mean, it, it has had that that impact. It, and. You know, it's it's great, Mike. I mean, it, it's just yeah. an amazing thing to uh, to have accomplished. Yeah, you probably never expected this, um, but you know, as Sonia's talking, I'm thinking to myself, this should be a mandatory watching for law students. I mean, and maybe it will be one day. Um, it, it absolutely well, you know, will be. I, I I can see it because it's so well done. It, it dives into it. Um, 
the result may not have been um, what you wanted, what he wanted, but it, it, it's not for lack of trying. And it, it goes to show that, I mean, what does it go to show, right? I mean, I'm just, I haven't thought about this until this second, but it, what does it go to show? You know, you, you know, best laid plans, right? I mean, you did everything right. You would have, I'm sure if we got into it, if we had five hours, what would you have done differently in that trial? Is there one thing that you could, uh, for the fans who watch this interview, who've seen it or who go back and watch it and then see it is, is there one or two things that you would have done differently? You, you know, uh, I don't, I don't second guess myself. Okay. very much. You know, I, I think it all out in advance. So I, I you know, could, they, could I have done things differently? Sure. Of course. Would, you know, would I now do it any differently? Uh, I don't know. I mean, would I, would I, I one thing. I I'm going to put one, one thing. I know. You, go. you might not have used Henry Lee. Yeah. Yeah. Henry, I didn't, I, I underestimated the prejudice that Henry would encounter uh, in Durham, North Carolina. I, I thought Durham was a sophisticated enough place that someone like Henry uh, would play okay. And, and I, I think not for his fault, uh, but I, I probably could have used a, a different crime scene person who spoke Southern, you know, uh, yeah. uh, but well, and again, I think you also questioned when he did the, the ketchup thing that it was a little too, people laughed at, like he may, he might've gotten, he was a little too theatrical. theatrical. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but you know, but um, I think again, it, it does come down to who your jury was and, and, but by then you were so invested. Oh, I, yeah. You know, I mean, well, I don't know if you saw the, the uh, mock trial we did, but there were some comments about Henry's accent and things in the mock trial. But by then I was, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm into it. I mean, I, I can't pull Henry at that point and suddenly, you know, plug somebody else in. So um, yeah, maybe that, maybe that's one thing, but you know, that's not fair to Henry either. I mean, it, you know, um, we all did the best we could. And, uh, and look, at the end of the day, uh, it may have been eight years too late, uh, but we proved what we needed to prove, which was Dwayne Deaver was full of shit, you know, and you can cut that out if you need to, oh. but, but that's, that's what we proved. Uh, and that's what Henry was trying to say. Uh, and, and eventually we proved it. So when you have, when you have, um, I mean, I, I don't know the right word, you know, people who are lying and people who are, who are, uh, Perjuring themselves. perjuring themselves, confirmation bias, you know, trying to fit the evidence um, to, you know, fit their theory. Um, it's sometimes it's hard to, to prove that stuff, especially when you're in it. You know, yeah. you have these experts who come up and lie. We have in civil cases, we have experts that lie every day. Right. right? And, and it's hard to um, it's hard to prove. And it took you eight or nine years to prove it. Um, but when you're in it, it's, it's, you know, I, I asked a couple of the, um, people that I've interviewed, you know, when they have these people on the stand, because what we're finding, what the people that I've interviewed, you have prosecutorial, prosecutorial misconduct, police and detective misconduct, judge misconduct, but when you're in it, 
when you have an uneducated poor person sitting at a table with a public defender or or, or, or somebody who's being paid $500 or $1,000 and they have six other murder trials that, that, that they're waiting to do. And, and people are just, of course, just saying what they have to say. It's hard to sound that alarm. It's hard to know. It's hard to prove it. Well, and this is, look, you know, how do you cross-examine an expert? You cross-examine an expert by their prior depositions, their prior testimony, and by learned treatises. I mean, that's about it. Uh, and then you put on your own expert. Well, I did that with Dwayne Bieber. And I would show him, you know, uh, treatise after treatise that said what he did, you couldn't do. And he would just sit there and say, well, I, I disagree. He's just wrong. You know, what do you do about that? And the jury believed him over your guy. Of course. And, you know, what happened with Dwayne Deaver, too, just earlier we were talking about misconduct within the system, and David talked about confirmation bias. What happens with Deaver and what happens with others when they do things like make up evidence or perjure themselves, there's a name for that, too. That's called noble cause corruption, where the reason they're doing something wrong, perjuring themselves, making up evidence, whatever the case may be, is because they believe they have the right guy. And it's sort of an ends justify the means right. type of mindset. And that's very hard to cross-examine against, too, because of the authority that they bring. You know, Dwayne Deaver was so sure that it was Peterson. And even when he responded, you know, it was dismissive of questions from David. I, You know, you've probably seen the the parts when he's cross-examined in the staircase where all he does is he just turns to the jury and it's like David's not even there. And he's he's with them and they're with him. And that makes it even more challenging. So did you did you interview the jury after the uh, verdict? I didn't want to go anywhere near the jury after the verdict. Mike. You, wanted, you wanted to probably strangle them all. You know, uh, I had I had promised her an interview uh, after the verdict and, and no one was expecting a guilty verdict. No, that's true. Uh, you know, I thought the worst we would have would be a hung jury. Uh, so I had promised her an interview and then this verdict comes in, uh, and, uh, uh, she didn't let me off the hook. Uh, I so, didn't feel bad asking. Yeah. So, uh, we did an interview, but no, I, you know, I had, I had no desire. I just wanted to get out of there. I mean, it was a devastating thing. For me. Was that professionally the worst day you've had? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and conversely, uh, the uh, hearing where he was granted a new trial was probably one of the best days I've ever had. And, and for, for, again, for our viewers and listeners, um, the second trial never went. Uh, you spent many, many months uh, uh, working hard for your client and got him an Alford plea. Am I saying that right? Alford. Well, Sonia says Alford. I say Alford. It's but... tomato, tomato. Okay. So we don't have that in Michigan. Why don't you take a minute, explain one of you two lawyers over there, explain to me what that is. And uh, it sounded like a pretty good thing when I read about it. Um, but go it's, ahead. It, it's a compromise. It's a way of settling a case where both sides want to settle it, but neither side can really fully give it up. Uh, and so an Alford plea, which has been approved by the U.S. Supreme Court, basically is I'm going to enter a plea of guilty, but I'm not guilty. 
I'm going to enter this plea for other reasons. Sometimes it's health reasons. Sometimes it's uh, it's age reasons. Sometimes it's just uh, I don't want to take another chance on this. I want to get on with my life. Uh, so the offered plea lets the person put an end to the case, but it also gives the DA something that he or she needs, which is the guilty plea. And that, you know, in this case was the two sisters, Candace and, uh, and Lori, uh, who absolutely ran the train. Uh, you know, they lived in Virginia. This was a prosecution in North Carolina. It was going to cost the taxpayers of Durham millions of dollars to retry this case. And yet the DA would not dismiss it because the two sisters objected. Hmm. Frankly, I thought that was cowardice on, on his part. Uh, but we had to deal with what we had to deal with. And so we ended up with the Alford plate. And was that, um, I mean, I, I can't imagine, I mean, the, the, I guess, was it hard to convince Michael to take that? No, you know, Michael had done eight years. And I, you know, when you look at Michael at the beginning of the, of the documentary and Michael at the end of the documentary, it's shocking. I mean, he aged 25 years in those eight years. Uh, and he was at that point 70 something years old. He was ready to put this behind him and just live out the rest of his life. So for him, uh, there was only there were two conditions. Number one was he was never going to say that he actually killed Kathleen. And number two is he was not going to go back into a prison or a jail for one minute uh, that that he would not even be processed out of the Durham County Jail the way they normally do. And those were the two conditions, and the DA agreed to those, uh, and and then Michael was fine. And how is he doing with his uh, five children and, and, and what a family unit he had? Is, are they back together? Is he doing okay? Do you still keep in contact with him? I do. Uh, it's, it's actually, Caitlin has never re reconciled uh, with any of them. So that's a sort of sad outcome mm -hmm. of this case. The and other he was the only biological daughter of Kathleen. Yes. Correct. Okay. I just there's so many kids. I'm just go ahead. The other four kids, the two boys and the two girls, uh, always stuck by Michael. Uh, they continue to be a close family. They have their own children now. Uh, Michael is, you know, a grandfather. Nice. Uh, and uh, and he still lives in Durham. Believe it or not, uh, it's not where I would have chosen to live. Uh, but he lives there. Uh, and, and I think most people probably as a result of the staircase, cause I think probably in Durham, the, uh, the viewership of the staircase was probably, uh, uh, almost universal. Uh, I think people have, have, uh, accepted that, you know, what he went through was not fair. Uh, and whether, you know, whether you think Michael is guilty or not guilty is really besides the point of the documentary. You know, the point of the documentary is this is this is the criminal justice system. These are the problems in the criminal justice system. And he did not get a fair trial. Uh, and even the people who write to me and say, I think he's guilty, almost always say, but he didn't get a fair trial. And fascinating. You know, that's fascinating.
And, and, and uh, I love that people write you. It's funny how, how people, when you put yourself out there on even things like this podcast, I get emails, but I can't imagine the amount. Um, and I'm, I'm debating. So I have a question for one of you two about what you really believe happened. We may edit it out. Do one of you want to take it on? It may not be a fair question, um, but you know, it, it is such a convoluted, crazy story, you know, that I think people will get mad at me if I don't at least try to ask that question. Well, I'll tell you from a reporter's standpoint. Great. Once you see the autopsy photos and you read the autopsy itself, you ask yourself, if you've ever covered a case or ever read an autopsy or know anything about blunt force trauma, you look at it and you're like, this, something's not right here. Because the scars on the back of her head, they look like talon marks. They look like little rakes. And no, I could not understand how she could have been beaten to death. Um, you know, this, the falling down the stairs is really hard to fully get that again because of the blood. Um, Let me interrupt you for a second, but Verna Spitz had a theory, which is what we ended up using, which was when her head struck a flat surface, it was like a pumpkin. watermelon. A pump, uh, pumpkin, I think, is what he used. Okay. So, okay. So, so one impact can cause multiple splits, as Werner said it. So that it was, was it was still hard to believe, given the amount of blood and the smears, everything. Um, but there was a theory uh, that was floated towards the end of the trial. Well, really, at, at the, before just before before closing, closing arguments, arguments. but uh, after the evidence had closed that there had been a number of owl attacks in the neighborhood and maybe she was attacked by an owl. Now, when that theory came in, everybody laughed it off because it came from somebody who didn't have a whole lot of credibility. Um, there was a, a maybe an opinion piece or something in the Durham Herald Sun about it. Everybody laughed about it, I remember. But I will tell you that over time and, and living in an age of the internet and Instagram and Twitter and that where you can share things instantaneously, I think that that is actually the most realistic possibility because under her fingernails there was like a feather or something found well there's um, blood outside there's the blood house, outside the house. I, I could run you through my powerpoint mike uh of if, all the reasons if you ever, that if you ever want to do that i'll run you through okay. my PowerPoint, and then we'll see what your listeners have to think about what actually happened yeah because, well i mean it actually makes sense because she was putting out christmas decorations and so she had been outside and if there had been an owl and if it had attacked her it would make sense that she would run inside it would make sense that there was her blood print on the outside of the door it would make sense that she was going like this to try to get it out of her hair and it actually fits because there's no blunt force trauma. I mean, there's her skull. Didn't, it, it doesn't make sense. She died from loss of blood, um, and it seems crazy, but I believe that is the most realistic thing. And there were lots of owl attacks in the area at the time. And when I talk about the age of the internet now, I mean, if you look, that we have people have sent David photographs of their animals who have been attacked by an owl. Compare. That, those photographs to Kathleen's autopsy, and they are almost identical. Sounds crazy, but that's that's what I actually think the realistic outcome is. So the word owl never mentioned a trial. Never. And you, you literally learned about this, David, when? After closing arguments or after the evidence? Or tell me that. We had, we had three or four days between the end of the evidence and closing arguments. 
So I'm sitting in my office at the time, and a, a neighbor of Mike's, a friend of Mike's called Larry Pollard, Larry Pollard, uh, calls me up. He says, I need to talk with you. I said, fine. Uh, he came into the office. He says, I know what happened. Uh, and he proceeds to tell me this story about how there's an owl in the neighborhood and owls attack people, this barred owl, and, and uh, runs it through for me. And I said to him, you know, Larry, oh, he also tells me he, he's, he's, he's already talked to the DA about this, and the DA blew him off, you know, big surprise. Um, and I said, Larry, even if I wanted to go with this theory after telling the jury for five months that it was a fall, even if I wanted to do that, I can't because there's no evidence in the record of owls in the area. I mean, it just never, never occurred to any of us to think about that. So I couldn't do anything with it. Uh, and he was very frustrated with me. And so he went public with it. And he went public with it before I think he had really done all of his homework, uh, you know, before he had experts lined up, before he before he could really sort of prove it, at least uh, prima facie. Uh, and so it got to be a joke. Uh, and and unfortunately, it, it never stopped being a joke. But, I, you know, I, I think Sonia is right. I think if you, you know, compare to the blowpoke theory, it's it's persuasive. So, so all these years later, I mean, look at we're we're allowed to play Monday morning quarterback. I mean, I mean, is I mean, you think about it, you've thought about it, you you, I mean, is that if you had to do the trial again, you think you'd Absolutely. do that? That would be your theory. That that would it would certainly be an alternative. It would certainly be. I wouldn't say this is what happened, but I would certainly say. Think about this. Is it a is it a reasonable possibility? Does it create reasonable doubt in this case? Good point. What theory fits. Did they check? Uh, DNA is probably the wrong word for birds and, and, and owls. But did they check for uh, that stuff in her head? There were there were a couple of feathers in her hair. We could. I, I thought they must have come from a down pillow, because how the hell else does she have these little tiny feathers in her hair? Were they ever analyzed to see if they were owl feathers? No, no. I mean, we didn't think anything of them. Are they in an evidence locker somewhere? I don't think. So. I think they were lost. Uh, you know, there was a there was a, a a little clipping of something that was lost. Uh, I'll give you another example. There was a there was a. Uh, a twig from like an evergreen tree uh, that was on the staircase uh, above her body. I thought it must have been stuck on her clothes from, because they were putting up their Christmas decorations that day. Didn't occur to me that it could have been from some owl swooping in on her. So, you, you know, there's, you know, when you look back at something, as you well know, you know, you suddenly have new information and things that didn't seem significant suddenly seem very significant. But but there was not one piece of evidence that I saw. Tell me if I'm wrong, because I unfortunately I haven't watched every minute. But there's not one piece of evidence proving an intruder. None. And there's never been a weapon. Never. Um, and what I was a little surprised was with with when I was listening to Werner uh, or Werner and. Um, and Daniel Lee about the about the the marks on the back of their head, it it almost felt 
unscientific, the way they were analyzing the back of the head and the potential talon marks or the potential, you know, they were saying it's a round blunt force trauma. But those were, as Sonia said, those were some bizarre marks that how could Michael have done those? And where was the weapon? How could he have gotten rid of a weapon? Um, he didn't have any other than, uh, I don't know, he didn't have too much. I mean, he had blood on him, I'm sure, from leaning down and helping her, but uh, he had no splatter. Nothing on his shirt. Is it in his hair and his face? He didn't shower. He, there was no evidence he cleaned up. Okay. I mean, so, like, <laughs> I mean, it was like a phantom. It was like a phantom thing. And in and, and, and the fall, I know you had to go with it. But like, like you guys already said, it was, it was, it, it was a hard, it was hard, it was hard to swallow. I mean, yeah. those marks, I mean, those marks were hard to swallow. I don't Stop know. To run. I have a noon call. Thank you. I'm going to talk to David for one more minute about your podcast. Yes. Oh, the podcast. You go, because I want, I want, I'm going to start listening. I can't wait. David, tell me what abuse of power. Sonia, thank you. Okay. Oh. Yeah. David, tell me about abuse of power. Well, you know, uh, we decided uh, a couple years ago uh, after all of these, you know, we start after after Peterson, I started doing wrongful conviction cases. So my practice now is pretty much representing people suing police officers for wrongful convictions. I guess you have one of those cases now yourself. Um, and And the great advantage I have in doing those cases is that I've lived this for 40 years. So I, it's sort of like, you know, where the bodies are buried, you, you know, what they did, you know, why they did it. Uh, and, and it's just, it's clear to me. So I started doing those cases and I've done, you know, maybe eight or 10 of them. Uh, and, and, or just in uh, North Carolina. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'll do them anywhere, but so they've been all in North Carolina to this date. Actually I have one in Northern Florida right now. Um, uh, in any event, uh, uh, and I'm happy to talk with you about yours in terms of, you know, brainstorming and stuff. Thank you. Uh, but um, uh, so I started doing these and I realized the abuses that go on in the system all the time. Um, you know, when you're when you're doing your cases, you're so focused on this particular client or that particular client that you really don't think about the overall abuses in the system and, and doing these cases caused me to think about that. Uh, and so, uh, uh, I decided I was going to write a book about it. Uh, and I actually have a, a contract with Harper Collins, uh, and hopefully they'll publish the book next year. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, we decided that, that we ought to tell these stories, uh, in much the same way that I think the staircase, has educated a lot of people about what goes on in the criminal justice system. We felt like we could we could replicate that with a podcast because you know I, I went on a speaking tour after after the uh, staircase and I would get a thousand people in the auditorium. I mean it was astounding to me. Uh, you know I'd be in I'd be in the uh, Scotland. Uh, and I'd fill up this auditorium with three levels of seats. Wow. Uh, you know, it's amazing. And, and, and so I felt like we needed another forum to tell the stories. Uh, and I had, I had made a connection with the fellow who did uh, uh, The Innocent Man on Netflix. 
and he and I got to talking and he was interested in doing something. So the podcast was born of that. And what we've, what we've done in the podcast is we took uh, 10 wrongful convictions and I want to, I want to broaden the podcast out from just wrongful convictions. Um, but for the first season, we took 10 cases uh, and we just analyzed them. We, and, and, and we told it as a story, you know, we didn't, it wasn't a dry uh, uh, sort of uh, lecture. Uh, we interviewed the people. Uh, we, you know, we we talked about what had happened and why it had happened. Uh, and so uh, I think it's been really successful. Uh, you know, we've, we've gotten uh, something like a quarter million downloads uh, for the first 10 episodes. Great. Uh, which is great. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, we're hoping to do season two. Uh, and, uh, you know, what, what I'd like to do is I'd like to broaden it out. I'd like to talk about, for example, uh, you know, police dealing with, uh, with people out on the street. Uh, I'd like to talk about bail and the abuses of the bail system. Uh, you know, there's so many, there's so many abuses of power, uh, starting in Washington, DC today. Uh, that, that, uh, you know, I just think it's, it's a, a ripe topic. Uh, and so I'm hoping that we can, we can sort of, uh, expand the focus a little bit beyond just wrongful convictions. Well, let's hope David, that, uh, with the news that you and I both woke up to this morning, yes, this is not going to be, this is not live. This is going to be in a few weeks, but it looks like the U S Senate is, uh, going blue. Yes. And, um, and, uh, who knows what could happen in the criminal justice reform land? Um, my fingers are crossed. Uh, our governor of Michigan just signed several new uh, statewide legislation uh, initiatives, and I'm hoping for U.S. changes, and I'm sure you are too. But wouldn't that be exciting? Absolutely. And, you know, those changes had started coming under Obama. Uh, and especially in the forensic sciences, there was a lot of progress that had been made that Jeff Sessions just, you know, put a stake in. Uh, and, and I'm really hoping uh, that whoever comes in as attorney general, you know, whether it's Doug Jones, who's a former criminal defense lawyer who I knew back in the day, uh, or, you know, whether it's uh, somebody else, uh, will pick up those initiatives and start moving them forward. Well, thank you so much for being with us here on Open Mic. I know I've taken more time than I said. I feel like I could do three more podcasts with you. I have a hundred more questions. So if you're if you have availability in the coming months, um, I'm going to give you another call. Yeah, but, please, please do. I mean, you know, when when the book comes out, you know, obviously I'd love to to be on. Uh, uh, and and like I meant what I said. I mean, if if you want to just brainstorm your case, give me a call and and we'll just brainstorm. All right, so just hold on one second, David. But again, if uh, people are watching and listening, Abuse of Power podcast, check out Staircase on Netflix. David Rudolph, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Michael. Hi, it's Mike Morse. Thank you for watching another episode of Open Mic. Happy 2021 again. I hope you enjoyed this episode with David Rudolph and Sonia Pfeiffer. I learned a ton about this trial. Some of the questions I asked, I guarantee you they did not get asked
before today about the new theories and all that kind of stuff. Let me know if you uh, liked it. Let me know if I missed any questions because it sounds like I'm going to have them back on and share this episode, like it, comment, subscribe, please. We love having you here. We love all the downloads. We're looking forward to a great 2021 season. We have lots of great things lined up for you. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Take care.